So our series has been called Mobilize for Mission. What does it mean to mobilize something? I was looking up in the dictionary. So to mobilize is to bring people together for action. To organize and encourage people to act in a concerted way in order to bring about a particular objective. We talk about mobilized for mission first and foremost is God's mission. God's saving mission to restore us with him. But we're seeking what that means for our church to be mobilized for God's mission in light, especially in light of what we see in the first followers of Jesus. So I've asked Steve Mahoney to come up and he's going to read a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. And he's going to flip over to Mark as well and read uh, some of these early instructions of Jesus. Steve, come, come and read for us now. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Thank you, Steve. I would imagine for many those words are pretty familiar. So last week we talked about this commission that Jesus gave, call it the Great Commission. That was to go into all the world and make disciples. They would do this as those first followers of Jesus would would bear witness of Jesus. They would say, "Here's, here's who he is. Here's what he did. He died on the cross, but he rose from the dead. The first followers of Jesus had this commission to bring good news. The the message wasn't first and foremost that you can be religious and make some improvements in your life. The message first and foremost was about this man named Jesus and how he had changed everything, that he was the promised one of God sent to this world to rescue the world. And that by, by placing your faith in him, by turning from everything else, by obeying him, by continuing to follow him, you're rescued. You're, you're a witness. But as Steve just read, Jesus didn't just give instructions to go make disciples. Along with the instruction to go make disciples, another commandment was given, and actually several. But I want us to think of kind of these commandments as one. Not only were the disciples commissioned with good news, but accompanying good news would be good works. Let your light shine before others that they would see your good works. This is what Jesus told his followers to do. 
So if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, we hear that and say, we are to let our light shine before others that they might see good works and give glory to God in heaven. Jesus gave a command, and actually there was the greatest command is to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, but but one just like it is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So as the first followers of Jesus went with good news, accompanying that was good works. How would the disciples of Jesus respond? So last week we looked a good bit in Acts. We're going to be back there today. We find out that once that message went out in Acts chapter 2, that, that many believed says in Acts chapter 2 verse 41 that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. So lots of people have placed their faith in the good news, but then what is their life going to look like as a result of believing that good news? It should make a difference if they're obeying Jesus. And it did. Acts 2 and verse 44, it says, all those who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were They were even selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they weren't weren't mandated to do that. This is where God's grace had taken them. This wasn't like a, a socialist or a communist experiment. This was God's grace motivating them to care for each other, to make sure if there was a need, it was met. The the same ones who placed their faith in Jesus as the one who God had sent to be the Savior, to be the rescuer are the same ones now looking out saying, are those needs met? Are those needs met? Do I need to sell something I have so that I can take care of others' needs? The natural response was to take things that God had given to them and to use them to share with others. This isn't the only time this happens in the book of Acts. You can flip over to Acts chapter 4 and you see it again. Acts 4 verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and, and of one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So good news was going out, but accompanying that good news was this heart saying, We are to let our light shine and we are to do good works so that others might glorify our Father in heaven. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what is that going to look like? Great grace is upon them all, in verse 34, and there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, this wasn't mandated. But this is what what God's grace was doing in their lives. This is what the good news was accomplishing in their lives. By the time you get to Acts 6, there's a desire on the part of the church to make sure that widows aren't neglected, especially when it comes to like their food. And so they organize an effort to distribute food. But where where do they get the food to distribute? Other people are giving so that widows can be taken care of. You even see... In Acts chapter 11, God's people are wanting to care for people across a longer distance. In Acts chapter 11, it says, In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be great famine all over the world. Now notice what the disciples do in verse 29. The disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
So somewhere along the line, this good news that they had believed that Jesus had come in the flesh and was the savior, the rescuer, and was reigning and would come again, and the response to that was obedience and faith. Also, good works were accompanying this. How do we, what, what do we take away from this? Church, I want us to think about this, that the followers of Jesus collected and shared what God had given them so that others' needs would be met. You find this again and again in the book of Acts. You find this again and again where God's people are. This is what Christians do. Part of what it means to love our neighbor and part of what it means to to do good works is to collect and share what we have, what God has actually given to us to be a steward of and to share it with others who have need. This is a sign of what, that we love our neighbor. Several other places in the Bible that speak to this obligation to care, especially for those that are inside the faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Galatians 6 says this. We don't have, have time to get context into each one of these verses. You're welcome to look at them. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially those who are of the household of faith or the family of believers. So let us do good to everyone we possibly can as we have opportunity. That may mean different proportion opportunities for for lots of us, but as we have opportunity, let us do good. James reminds us of something important. If a a brother or a sister, so we're talking about our our brothers and sisters in Christ, if if they're poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, And one of you just says, yeah, go in peace, be warmed and filled without actually giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? It's it's no good. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So I, I hope you see in these verses, this is really talking largely to insiders that we take care of those inside our church family. But even Galatians 6.10 is going to remind us it's not just those inside the family. We should, as we have opportunity to do good, especially to those in the household of believers. But, but I think even the story of the Good Samaritan reminds us that we are to look beyond, beyond our church family. There's a snarky question like, well, who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who's my neighbor? And Jesus turns that question in such a strong way and says, who can you be a neighbor to? Who this week might you run across that you could be a neighbor to? 1 Timothy 6.18. This is a strong verse. It's good for us in probably the richest culture that's ever been on this planet to hear this. So it says they. Let me just fill in the blank of who they is. They are, are those who have been blessed with material resources, which most of us qualify. We are to do good, to be rich, not in our bank account, but in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And and by doing this, we store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future because this life isn't all that matters, so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Rich in good works, generous, ready to share. And even Acts 20 reminds us of the words of the Lord that says, "It, it is always more blessed to give than to receive. 
Do you, do you feel the press of God's word on this? It's really not ambiguous. We are to love our neighbor. We are to let our light shine so others would see good works. So, so from Ogletown Baptist Church, from those that call themselves Christians, ought to be good works flowing from us. There are ways to do this wisely. There are ways to do this poorly. But scripture doesn't give us an option to say, yeah, I'm going to opt out of that. Because God has prepared, according to Ephesians 2, God has prepared good works. He's created them, us, as his workmanship, that we would walk in those good works. He's, he's ordained this. This is his plan. How do we do that? How do we show this willingness to collect, this willingness to share, so that others' needs are met? Well, individually, I mean, there's, and the opportunities are endless. It's just neat when you hear stories of your church family doing this. So recently there was a, a dad that was going to be out of town. And a family knowing that the burden would then fall to mom. You like, keep the household in line. Make sure the kids are okay. Gave her a large amount on a gift card to Chick-fil-A. Where else, Right? and said, you don't need to worry about dinner for a couple days. I, I think of the number of meals that I, I hear about. I, I talked to someone, and yeah, so-and-so brought this meal. Yeah, we were going, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a time of like intense care, or just had a baby, or just going through a difficult season, and someone shows up with a meal. So someone went and bought groceries that they weren't going to eat. Took time to prepare them to share. It's an incredible thing to see the, the little touches of mercy, the little touches of kindness. As a church, we try to do this. So it is rare we don't have some sort of collection going. Even now, we're collecting school supplies. Largely to say, if the Lord's given you something that you can share, there are those that are in need. Throughout the year, we'll connect, we'll, we'll collect stuff for health kits, especially for the homeless. We fill shoeboxes with toys. We, I, there's no pretense that that solves the world's problems, but it is an effort to say, if God has blessed us, let's share. Uh, on fifth Sundays, often we'll collect uh, an offering, an offering that goes to benevolence to try to meet people's needs. Why do we do that? We're trying to honor here what God has told us to do, that we ought to be rich in good works. We put money in baby bottles and give the money that's collected to a door of hope, crisis pregnancy center for those that are walking through a very, very difficult time. Why do we do this so often? Why, why do people gather in here two or three times a week and, and take food that bakeries can't sell, but it's still good to eat and, and make sure that people that are hungry get that food? Why do people do that at, at Ogletown Baptist Church? Because of the recognition that God has given us an opportunity to show our love for him through collecting and sharing what he's given us so that others' needs might be met. Lots of people do good works all the time. So it's not church just doesn't have the corner on the market. Ogletown surely doesn't have the corner on the market. But what makes it different? I mean, others will 
they give in the name of like giving back. So they have a lot of stuff. I just feel like I ought to give back where they give in, in the name of being the change they want to see in the world. So what, what is different? What is different about the church? What is different about Christians when we give? I think there's some things going on with our motivation that, that do make it different. I'm grateful when anybody wants to give to relieve suffering. That's a good thing. That's reflecting the creator that made us in his image whether we have a personal relationship with him in faith or not. But what about it when Christians do this? What are we saying when we give? I think one thing we're saying, one thing I'm saying when I give is I'm saying that I am trusting that God will be faithful to his promise and take care of my needs. Because if I didn't trust God, I might just hoard everything. And that's a temptation in my heart, even on stupid stuff. So if you were, if my wife were to ask me, can I have one of your Reese's peanut butter cups? My, my willingness to answer that with joy will largely be, be determined, do I have a bag full? Because then pretty immediately my answer is going to be, do you want one or two? How many do you want? Because I got a bag full. But if I've got one left, I'll probably say, you can have it. I just have this one. And then she'll, she'll say, oh, Curtis, you can eat it. And I'll say, okay, okay. <laughs> I get stingy about candy. But how different, how different it should be when I'm not worried about hoarding this one last thing I've got because I'm not sure I, I'm going to get more. I better take care of it. But when God opens our heart, because we have a heavenly father who's, who has told us to ask and to seek and to knock, he's told us to pray to him, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And he wants us to pray and then wants us to be grateful as he provides for us. And once again, we wake up uh, at another day and say, Lord, give me my daily bread. And we go to bed at night saying, Lord, you did it again. You provided for every need that I have. Why would I be stingy? Why would I have such a death grip on things that I'd say, that's mine and that's mine and I can't give that up? Why would I do that? When I've been told to seek first his kingdom and, and his righteousness and then all these things, all, these, all this other stuff. Like God knows what you need. All that other stuff will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom. Hunger and thirst after righteousness and then, and then you're not going to have to worry about being satisfied. We don't have to worry about things because our Heavenly Father already knows what we need. And we're not twisting his arm to give us stuff. He knows what we need. And so we can, we of all people ought to be the ones that say we can share what God has given us because we know we have a Heavenly Father who meets all our needs. I think even beyond that, though, we have seen how generous Jesus is. What is different about the Christian? I mean, we have seen we are the recipients of God's mercy to us. We've seen how generous that though Jesus was eternally rich, for our sakes he became poor. We know the cost of what it meant. And we just begin to plumb the, the depths of that. But we, we know the cost of what it meant for God so loved the world that he gave. And then we recognize that the, Christ loved the church so much that he gave. 
how, how would we be stingy with what he's given to us when we've received the greatest of mercy, forgiveness and reconciliation and being made right with God? Well, surely, fueled by the grace of God, we would extend mercy. Jesus has become the center of our life if we're in Christ. And we've been transformed to love our neighbor through the work of the Holy Spirit. We can, we can be generous when otherwise everything else would say, no, I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm not going to give it away. Jesus has said, the merciful, the merciful are blessed. I think all of this goes hand in hand. This good works and how it motivates us to collect and to share with those in need. I think it goes hand in hand with another story I find in Acts. So if we were in Acts 2, you turn one chapter over and you read of another, another instance where, okay, we've got the disciples with this good news and they're going out sharing the good news. But right alongside that is this motivation to do good works. In Acts chapter 3, let's hear the story. So Peter and John, going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And notice in verse 2, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they, we don't know who they are, but whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John, I mean, how many times did this drill go down? A day. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter looked at him, didn't he? He directed his gaze at him. And John did too. And they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat past tense, who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What do we see happening? This is like lots of other stories in the Gospels and in Acts. The followers of Jesus responded with care for the needs and situation of those who were vulnerable. This is what what the followers of Jesus do. They respond with care and attention to the needs, to the situation of those who are vulnerable. There's an awareness and sensitivity to the needs of the disabled, the lame, the paralyzed, those that perhaps seem to be unwanted or merely tolerated or ignored. No social structure is going to give them security, easily taken advantage of, probably not likely to be naturally loved. Do you know this kind of activity continues in Acts just if we took a sampling of the people that the disciples encountered or that encountered the disciples, they go to the people, people come to them. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 16, they, they run across sick people. And you see the list here. Sick people and people who are, and this is the wording in Scripture, tormented in their spirit. And then in chapter 8 and verse 7, the followers of Jesus run across people that are paralyzed and lame and also have unclean spirits. Scripture tells us in Acts 9.33, they, the disciples run across this man, Aeneas, who is paralyzed. In chapter 14, there's a man who had never walked. In chapter 16, the, the disciples, Paul and Silas, encounter this girl who is a, a slave. 
and being used to make her master money. In chapter 19, they come across, uh, the disciples come across those that are sick and diseased and evil spirits are possessing them. What did we say earlier? I mean, what do, what do the disciples, what do the followers of Jesus do when it comes to meeting these people? The followers of Jesus respond with care for the needs and the situation of the vulnerable. One thing I'm tempted to do all too often when I see a list like the one I just showed you, I mean, I think a lot of times in categories. Think, oh, this is one of those, the, the paralyzed person story. Oh, this is the blind man story. Oh, this is one of the exorcisms, the demon possessed story. And I think it might be a helpful exercise if we just took a step back from our categories and realized these are individuals, these are people, these are scenarios, people with names, they're not just categories. So this lame man that we just talked about in chapter 3. So he had a name. We're not told it, but he had a name. How old was he? How old do you think? Was he 30? I wonder if he was 50. I wonder if he was 60. I wonder how that would impact his story. I wonder how many people had been either unwilling or unable to care for him well. I wonder what it felt like when he first realized there was no safety net and no advocate. I wonder what it was like day after day for that individual to to just recognize how many people did not want to notice him. I wonder if you ask him, what's your future? I wonder what his answer would be. And we're introduced to people in the Gospels and in Acts who are tormented in spirit. I wonder what life looked like for them. I wonder if, if he or she noticed all the times that there were whispers going on and they knew they were talking about them. How many times did parents like make sure their kids, nothing to look at over here? This person who's tormented in their spirit feel that. I wonder how many times it's like, dude, get your act together. I wonder how many times she might have felt like it's something like comes over me and I can't explain it and I just want to be free from it. I wonder if there's depression. I wonder if there's anger. Then I think of those that were, that the girl that was enslaved in Philippi in Acts 16 only used for economic gain for her master. Never looked at as a person. Just an object to make money. I wonder what she felt. I wonder if you asked her about freedom, would that even have entered her, her mind? If that was even a possibility to be free from her master. Do we find ourselves with people in these places, lives that are tough, people who face challenges? I'm moved by these stories. I'm moved as a church. I I think we ought to be moved. I I also face the dilemma. It exposes something about me, and that is I've never had, so in all my years of being a Christian, I've never had any confirmation that I have a a gift of healing. There's all kinds of different thoughts on that, and I recognize that. This isn't the place to to debate or or to try to dissect everything about that. I've never felt like God has given me. I've never had confirmation, okay, Curtis, you have the gift of exorcism. If I had the gift of healing, I might walk over to Christiana and do what I could. I think I'd at least try. I've never felt that. So, So then when I read these stories about this one, 
healed and this lame man and this exorcism and I, you know those stories are wow I, I think is that just for them or is there something in light of the fact that I've never felt those giftings confirmed in my life what, what do I do with this and I, I want to challenge us all as a church family that whether or not you've ever healed anybody in your life can we at least come to the place where we see the value of bringing Jesus into those situations could we be at least like the first followers of Jesus who were present there who didn't run from but went to those situations? Could we at least be present with compassion? Could we be those that bring Jesus' name into the equation? And maybe that's our our silent prayer. Or maybe that's more than that, where we say, how can I help you? I'm motivated as a a follower of Jesus. Is there any way I can help you? And maybe you can help, and maybe you can't, but surely the Lord would push us there to be present, to bring the name of Jesus into those situations. Surely he would push us to sacrifice something and not just play it safe all the time. Surely this is where Jesus would take us. If we were to get practical, certainly this would mean individually, as we love our neighbor as ourselves, that you're... We're getting ready to go back to school, and so imagine you're a teacher, and you, you see the kid, and you know the backstory on this kid, and, and you know it's going to be a tough year, and, and, and you know it's going to be challenging, but you also know like a backstory of this kid's history, and it's awful, and it's, it's something that breaks your heart, and, and God moves in compassion and gives you patience and strength you otherwise wouldn't have in endurance and love for your neighbor. I wonder if we go into our, our places of work and we see a, a coworker going through a, a mental health crisis. I mean, there's not, it's not perfectly parallel, but certainly we run across people that are tormented in their spirit, be a, an apt description of it. Do we walk away or do we, do we hang in there? Do we stay present? Do we bring Jesus to bear on that situation? Do we pray, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I pray that you would work. I pray that you'd be merciful, especially to those that are vulnerable. I wonder if you might be the friend that God might call on to walk with this friend so that she would know her life is valuable. Valuable because she's made in the image of God. And she may even doubt whether life's worth living, but there you enter into that. Might you be that person? Might you be the neighbor that gives some resources responsibly that you might relieve the suffering of many? You do a good work in the name of Jesus. This is, I, I think this is where the Lord's calling us. I wonder as a church, so that's individually, but I wonder as a church, what are we doing? What could we do? I, I could go on and on, but can I speak from the heart? Just for a few moments here, I want our church to be the church that continues to care. Continues to care for the disabled and the handicapped. I want our church to lean into that. I want Ogletown to be a place where if you have a disability, if you have a handicap, that will not be a liability here. It's, it's tough at church sometimes. You know, there, there's a lot of things, a lot of things I don't remember about growing up. But I do remember some things. So many of you know, I have a sister, five or six years older than I am. She's never talked. She's never said a word in her life. And my mom cares for her. And she lives in the house where I grew up. And I remember, I, I guess I was maybe 10 or 11. 
And thankfully, I don't remember all, all the details of this particular day where my mom and dad went to church and got the very clear signal that my sister really wouldn't be welcome. There really wasn't a place they could really care for her well. So you know, my parents would need to make some other arrangements. I remember just kind of watching that from a distance. And I'm so grateful that my parents had strong, strong enough faith that that didn't cause them to hit the eject seat from church. And God's been merciful. But I, I, I wonder, isn't Jesus sending us to, to care for those that are vulnerable? I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the movement of compassion toward those that are disabled and handicapped. I'm grateful that our children's ministry works to serve those. It's not easy. It's not easy to care for those with disabilities or behavioral diagnosis. It's not easy. We recognize that. It actually requires our church to have more workers involved in that. It would, we, could, we could do children's ministry with less workers if there weren't those families that had special needs. But, but we think there's something profoundly, and this is what I've seen with my sister, Jadine, there's something profoundly present of the Spirit of God with her and around her that you cannot mistake. And I think, shouldn't we as a church lean into that and never make, never make someone who has a disability a liability as a church? Shouldn't we be on the forefront of welcoming those people? I think, could, couldn't we as a church also so care for the disabled? Shouldn't we care well for the seniors in our congregation, those that could easily be taken care of, easily be forgotten, Shouldn't we think about the widows? I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, God seems to care for the widow who could be taken advantage of, but he places the burden on God's people to make sure they're not. I'm not sure anything would quite show Jesus like someone, uh, a millennial or someone from Gen X, caring for someone 20, 30, 40, 50 years older than they are, making sure that that lady who's my sister in Christ, that man who's my brother in Christ, that they make sure they know they're not forgotten, that this faith means something more than just having a hip place to go with all my friends, but they know it means more to me than that. It means being part of something bigger than I am. Would that not show Jesus? Would that not show that our faith is, is, is something real? What would say transformation quite like that? I think our church, when we feel this need to care for those that are vulnerable, we, we certainly have to care for those. The scripture would point us to the widow and the, the immigrant, the refugee, and it would always point us to, regularly in scripture, it would point us to the orphan. It points us to kids that are vulnerable. I'm grateful for the six kids that are in the care of Ogletown Baptist families right now that are foster children. I'm grateful for this season. And there's nothing easy about this for the families involved. But what I've seen is the ripple effect of it kind of takes a church to support that kind of effort. And, and what if 30, 40, 50, 60 families were involved in supporting those that are fostering and we had this culture? What if it came to the point where social workers in Delaware had this unexplainable pattern that, that, that they saw where people connected to Ogletown seemed to care for the orphan? What's going on there? And it can't just be those families. It takes a church. What about the refugee, the immigrant? What about the people who are materially poor? What about those struggling with mental illness? What about the the life of the unborn? How vulnerable? What about those families broken by addiction? This moves us out. And because of Jesus, we love our neighbors. Because he said, let your light shine. We do good works. We put to death our own selfishness. 
We say, I will obey you, Jesus. And when I think of themes like that, I can't help but, I can't help but think, like, what, what if a child had a stable place and a loving family to call home because someone today decides, I think God's calling me here to love my neighbor as myself. What if someone got fed because we gave them food? Because we collected and shared? What if a special needs family felt this was the one place in all the world where every member of the family was accepted? What if someone understood Jesus better because of a benevolence offering we gave? What if a a refugee or an immigrant came into our church and was loved and saw Jesus displayed and sung about and taught and loved and worshipped and obeyed? What if a young lady or a young man got tutored and life was never the same? What about uh, someone that had a big brother or a big sister that's a part of Ogletown? What if an elderly person who is our neighbor finally had an advocate looking out for them? Let your light shine, Jesus says. Love your neighbor. I want to make one more connection. I think it's an important one. So we have a rhythm at Town. We meet weekly, and pretty soon we're going to meet even midweek. And I think that'll be great. I think we need to be refreshed in our faith. But Hebrews 10 puts some things together that I think we need to make sure we're putting together as well. Hebrews 10.24 says this. Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. And we, don't, we won't do that by neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. No, but by encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is what I'd love. I'd love for gatherings like this to just stir us up and motivate us to share good works, to do good works. Meetings like this, meetings like we'll have on Wednesday to motivate us to stir our hearts. We begin to consider as a Sunday Bible study class, as a small group, how can we love and show good works? How can we do that better? How can we do that more consistent? How can we do more than just show up on a weekend? How can we do this as a regular part of our life because we treasure Jesus? Church, let's pray that God would give us eyes to see. We would see those just like Peter and John saw the lame man and then we would do more than see. We'd have a heart willing to serve. Let's pray. Oh, thank you. Jesus, that you saw us in our need We thank you, Holy Father, that you sent your Son. Gave us a guarantee of life with you through your Holy Spirit. I pray as a church, Lord, I thank you for the number of people that come to our meetings. I pray that we would not neglect to meet together. But I pray meetings like this, conversations after church, texts sent throughout the week would would stir us up to love. Stir us up to good works. Father, how grateful we are that we don't have to earn your favor through our good works. You have done the good work. And we just walk in the path that you've already, you've already gone before and shown us how to love. So, Lord, let us do that. Let us do that better as a church. I pray that even in a moment as we as we leave this place, that we will leave ready to serve. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.